You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast, episode 39. Now, before we jump in, I wanted to share something really exciting. I recently started my weekly newsletter that goes out on Thursdays. And I know that sometimes listening to me here on the podcast with my guests might feel a little one-sided where it's just me and my guests talking. And where do you come in? And how do you come in? So when you join the newsletter, besides for getting information that isn't anywhere, not on the podcast, not on my Instagram, nowhere, you get that info. You also have the opportunity to directly respond to me over there and continue our conversation in your inbox. This week's episode is with Dr. Gregory Dodell. Dr. Dodell is a board-certified endocrinologist who received his medical degree from Albany Medical College. He completed his internal medicine and endocrinology Fellowship at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center, affiliated with Columbia University, and he is now in private practice at Central Park Endocrinology. This conversation is a breath of fresh air. There are so few medical doctors, especially endocrinologists, who practice from a weight-inclusive, weight-neutral perspective to help you deal with any endocrine issue. So... Dr. Dodell is definitely a unicorn in this. And we talk about, first of all, what the endocrine system is, what is an endocrinologist? Because I don't really know, but well, now I know. And what he helps with, how you can work with different skills and techniques and behaviors to help with PCOS and type 2 diabetes and all things related to the endocrine system that do not have to do with losing weight. So I'm excited to share this one with you. Let's just jump right in. Thank you, Dr. Dodell, for joining me. I am very excited about this conversation. Maybe before we jump in, can you share a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So I'm an endocrinologist. I grew up in Los Angeles, but uh, did all my medical training here in New York, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, which was Columbia at the time, now part of Mount Sinai. And I'm in private practice, my own practice, Central Park Endocrinology, and I enjoy what I do and hopefully help people along the way. Sure. <laughs> so you're an endocrinologist. Can you break down what that is? Like, what's your role? Who would come to you? Sure. It's like whenever I say to people at a party or like social event, like I'm an endocrinologist, I get a lot of blank stares and I'm like <laughs> throwing, you know, diabetes and thyroid and osteoporosis, which is bone. Um, disorders and PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Those are the main things that I treat. And I love the endocrine system because it affects the whole body versus some other specialties, which are all great and, and certainly play a role. This is nice because I think with the diagnosis and the correct treatment, we can really affect someone's whole, whole metabolic system, whole endocrine system, rather than being so focused on one specific organ, which obviously has its own role. So if you were to give a very brief, obviously this is going to be super reductionist, sort of almost 101 endocrine system, what are some of the basics? 
What I think is so cool about the endocrine system is it primarily works on this feedback loop, meaning that there's some stimulatory hormone or protein that starts off one of the glands and then stimulates another part of the body, which then produces another hormone. And based on those levels, there's a calibration that occurs. So for example, if blood sugar is high, the body will therefore produce more insulin to regulate blood sugar. And as blood sugar is normalized, the insulin levels will come down. Or with thyroid, if someone's not producing enough thyroid hormone, the brain will sense that and a hormone called TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, will go up to try and get the body to produce more thyroid hormone. And when it's balanced, that TSH will then balance itself out. So to me, it made, it made a lot of sense, you know, just how things all work on this feedback loop. And hormones are like this lock and key system. So all these hormones that are produced bind to cell receptors, which are basically these locks. And the hormones come in and they fit exactly where they're supposed to most of the time. And that turns on some function or, you know, to keep the analogy going, like opens the door to whatever cellular processes need to happen. So I just think it makes sense and it's kind of cool how it works. Yeah. So would you say that the endocrine system is, again, super reductionist, but sort of a management of our hormones? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the endocrine system is a hormone-based system and it affects everything from you know, as we talk about diabetes, like blood sugar control or the thyroid, which can do with energy and mood and metabolism and digestion or the adrenal gland, another part of the system, which is our cortisol level or fight or flight mechanisms. And then reproduction also, you know, whether it's PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or in men, testosterone levels. So it really covers a widespread of functions of our body. Yeah. It sounds like basically everything. In some way, shape, or form. I mean that—that's pretty much what I say in a biased setting. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's true, and that's why I like it because I see patients across, you know, the age spectrum, eighteen to hundreds. Um, I don't treat kids, but um, it's really just nice because once I start seeing someone, if they have one of these conditions that requires ongoing care, I get to follow them through the course of their of their lifetime, which is cool. I've had patients I've been seeing for, since I started. 10 years ago. So would you say for the most part that the people who come to you have these conditions, say PCOS, diabetes, thyroid issues, whatever it is, and they're basically lifetime conditions. It's not something that you could, I guess, treat is not a great word, but reverse might be a better word. It's not not possible. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of them, even if they were going to go off medication, for example, if someone had high blood sugar or they had gestational diabetes or whatever, and they're not on medication, it's something that we should probably still monitor. Generally, thyroid, something that if they're on medication, they continue with it. But I follow things like thyroid nodules or thyroid cancers, PCOS, not necessarily everyone's on medication, but it's things that we're, we're monitoring signs and symptoms for. That's so interesting. So when somebody is taking medication that sort of can put them in a place of they're comfortable with whatever their condition is and they might come back to you to, I guess, for a check-in or something, but otherwise they're good. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have to tweak medications and things like that. If they're on it, if they're not, it's just kind of, let's see you in six months or a year and make sure you're feeling well and doing all the things that, you know, help support your, your health. So I wanted to ask you a bunch of questions 
mainly because I get them all the time and I'm not an endocrinologist nor am I a registered dietitian. So I know nothing of this, but so many questions specifically about type two diabetes. I'm sure you get them all the time. And the first, the first thing that's standing out to me is this assumption that being in a larger body or eating sugar or eating whatever it is, fill in the blank, will cause diabetes. So I'm curious if you can speak to that just for a second. Sure. So we know that people across the size spectrum do have type 2 diabetes. And we know that a lot of people in larger bodies don't have diabetes and may never get diabetes. So, you know, it's very correlational, meaning that there's a lot of associations with different things and and weight included with regard to type 2 diabetes. But I think it's really important to tease out all the other variables that are involved and what other behaviors are involved. So whether it's movement, whether it's nutrition, like intuitive eating, whether it's stress, whether it's sleep, whether it's access to healthy foods and things like that. So yes, there may be a correlation with people in larger bodies and type two diabetes, but you got to look at all these other variables and you can't say being in a larger body causes type two diabetes. And it seems like some research may be starting to come out to say that actually higher amounts of insulin and insulin resistance comes before people actually gain weight. So oh, that's interesting. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty preliminary. I just started kind of like seeing some studies about that, but it's actually the insulin levels that change before there's any change in weight. So that would really change the whole paradigm and the whole approach to how we look at patients because, you know, the thinking is people gain weight and then they become insulin resistant potentially. And that's where the diabetes comes in. But if they can start showing, well, actually the people produce a lot more insulin because of insulin resistance. And then because of the cravings and all these things that occur because they're insulin resistant and then weight gain comes next, that would really flip it 180, I would think. A hundred percent. So what about the trajectory of somebody who sort of potentially meets criteria for pre-diabetes and then eventually moves in if they're of the subcategory of people who do move into the category of diabetes, what actually would, would cause that? It's hard to know. I mean, some of it may just be basic physiology and the evolution of, you know, when someone's in the pre-diabetes range, it's possible that it's just like an, been picked up kind of early and they have insulin resistance and things like that, um, that inevitably they may go on to get type two diabetes. But I believe it's been shown that the majority of those people that fall in the pre-diabetes range, specifically older people who are picked up with quote unquote pre-diabetes never actually go on to develop diabetes. So what is that category? What does it even mean? The pre-diabetes? Yeah. So it's basically what we would call subsettings like impaired fasting glucose, where the glucose is not essentially normal, but it's not in a range that would cross the threshold of diabetes. It may be like this kind of manufactured artificial like gray zone of like, well, this is something you should watch out for. I don't know how clinically significant it is. I mean, we'd have to really look at like across like the ages, what percentage of these people with prediabetes actually go on to develop diabetes? And are there any complications from being in the prediabetes range? The answer is probably no. Because when you're treating diabetes, the target is actually to get people 
into the same blood sugar range that we call prediabetes. So if it never really advances beyond that. So like what we look at is this three month average is A1C and the target A1C to have someone really in control is under 6.5 and prediabetes is 5.7 to 6.4. So it's like if the goal of treating someone with diabetes is to get them into that range and someone has prediabetes and it never goes beyond that, you know, I suspect that no harm done. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that not, I'm sure I'm guessing that there isn't much of an answer, but what is your understanding of how it comes to be? And we're talking about type two diabetes, but maybe any endocrine issue. Is it genetic? Is it mostly genetic? Is it, you have no idea. I'm sure there's, you can insert like DEF options if you. Yeah. No, no, no. (laughs) I think, I, I think genetics plays a large role in a lot of health conditions and certainly in diabetes and PCOS and thyroid which I treat a lot of. And when I do a history of patients, a lot of times like, oh yeah, my whole father's or mother's side have diabetes and everyone has thyroid or whatever it is. So a lot of it is genetic. So therefore, you know, you do what you can lifestyle wise and making sure you're getting good sources of nutrition and moving and managing stress and things like that. And a lot of times it's out of someone's control. And I think it's important to stress that in any chronic condition that it's not your fault. There's no stigma with taking medication and things like that. And you do what you can. And if you get the diagnosis, you manage it and that's it, you know, and hopefully live a long, healthy life regardless. So what does the medication actually do? For which one? I don't know. I was thinking type two diabetes, but any and all, I'm just interested. You're using like the key metaphor. So how does that work? So for type two diabetes, the foundation of it or the physiology of it, a lot of it is what we call insulin resistance, meaning that the pancreas is producing insulin, which is the hormone that regulates blood sugar. And the cells not, may not be as responsive to the insulin. So the body therefore has to produce more insulin, more insulin, more insulin to overcome that resistance, at which point the insulin levels drop and the blood sugar is not able to be controlled anymore. So a lot of the medications such as like you've heard of metformin, work to lower that insulin resistance. Some of the other medications work to stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin. They're like stim- pancreatic stimulation medications. Some of the newer ones, like these injectable GLP-1 agonists, they're called, slow down the body's digestive processes, which you know can make people feel fuller sooner, and that's kind of how they work. And then another one, another class is SGLT2 inhibitors, which pull sugar actually out of the bloodstream and people just pee it out. So it doesn't even require insulin or the pancreas. So there's a lot of mechanisms um, that these medications work under. So how does some of the last couple that you mentioned affect nutrition or someone's ability to take in energy if they're sort of getting rid of it? Yeah. So the last one, these SGLT2 inhibitors, no real effect on nutrition. I mean, basically if the sugar is running high, the sensors in the kidney just say, oh, sugar is above this point. Let's just get rid of it. The GLP-1s, which are the, the injectables you hear you know, advertised all the time, the Ozempic, the Trulicity, which are now being marketed kind of also in the weight loss category, which I guess is a whole other discussion, but they are really good for type 2 diabetes. And we're using them a lot for PCOS because they work on insulin resistance. The mechanism whereby they cause weight loss is partially because people feel fuller sooner 
because it slows down digestion. It may also come with like some nausea and other kind of uncomfortable things. So for that reason, you know, that can be problematic, certainly with people with disordered eating. And, and when I prescribe them, I don't prescribe them for the weight loss component. I prescribe them because they're good for the other things that I treat. And people certainly may, people may lose weight on it, of course, but um, that's not generally why I prescribe them. So let's go there just for a second with your understanding, because I have heard about that, especially in people post-bariatric surgery who like, quote, aren't losing weight fast enough, whatever that means. And how does it work? Besides for the fact that like, we obviously both don't agree with the entire situation, but how does that work? Why does that work? Is it bad for the person in terms of like, their systems. Yeah. So we don't, a lot of these data on these GLP ones came from bariatric surgery by looking at this hormones that tend to change post-bariatric surgery, something called the incretin effect, which are these GLP one hormones. And they noticed that even before people lose weight, like immediately after surgery, these hormones, these GLP one incretin levels start going up and that was controlling blood sugar and some of these other hormones. So that's kind of where it came from. And we just don't know long-term. I mean, we know, we know they work, you know, in the short term for whatever is going on, but long-term, we don't know what the effect's going to be, but I do know. And I, I think we do see when people go off these medications, the most likely outcome, just like dieting is that they're going to gain the weight back and they may have lost some of the signaling and things like that, or become disconnected from their hunger and fullness cues because it's been suppressed while they're on the medication. We know that weight cycling can be detrimental for metabolic and also mental reasons, psychologically, the up and down in weight. So unless someone intends to take these medications lifelong, you know, you're most likely to see kind of the up and down with weight. What happens with weight cycling, I guess, more on a physical level? So you tend to see increases in inflammatory markers, cortisol levels, which are stress markers, fluctuations potentially in insulin levels, you know, as fat cells and adipose tissue changes. So I think, you know, that's obviously detrimental physiologically. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and I think that you're probably a unicorn in that your prescription is not weight loss. What do you think is particularly harmful about that prescription, especially with someone with an endocrine issue? I think that we haven't really found a way to make things like that sustainable. And also there's such a tremendous amount of disordered eating and the psychological components that come with things like type two diabetes and thyroid and PCOS that not like anti-weight loss, anti using that as like the sole thing that we're shooting for, because if you focus on people's behaviors and the studies show this, even if their weight does not change, their cardiometabolic health improves. The research on diabetes shows that there's an excellent paper um, by Gazer with like 200 some odd references that showed just by improving fitness alone, independent of any changes in weight, their inflammatory markers, their blood sugars, all these things get better. And that's a more sustainable approach. So when you say fitness, what do you mean? Activity levels, movement. I think in those, a lot of the studies they did like treadmill tests, bike, you know, whatever ways that they measure in a research method, fitness, but just getting out and moving more, whatever people like doing can help. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing that I, that I would be concerned about is that often what happens is people hear, oh, increased movement. Okay. I'm going to go to the gym for three hours a day because here's this person with a medical degree telling me that I should increase my fitness. Right. Right. And I, I tried and I do not use the word fitness. I don't even really try. I try not to use the word exercise because the connotation for that, for a lot of people is this negative thing that it has to be about, well, I got to burn X amount of calories, or I got to get to this goal weight or no pain, no gain, or if I'm not sweating, I'm not doing anything. So I really try and call it movement and it could be anything like doing chores, gardening, dancing, playing with their kids, like whatever movement there is that you enjoy can be beneficial. Yeah. And you don't have to do it for hours on end in order to reap the benefits of just moving a little bit. No, exactly. What are some other things that you would recommend regardless of weight besides for moving a bit to help somebody? No matter what someone's weight is, sleep is important. No matter what someone's weight is, managing stress is important. And no matter what someone's weight is, getting enough fiber and protein, and which is fruits and vegetables and, and all these things is important. And I think there's so much certainly tied with nutrition based on body weight, but obviously people cross the size spectrum, eat different types of food. And a lot of assumptions obviously are made about what people eat who are in larger bodies, which are often or can be very wrong. And same thing with movement. So it's not making assumptions. I'm mean, trying to reduce stigma because I think that's the best thing that we could do for patients. And I think patients not blaming themselves and all these things and this internalized stigma also is very detrimental. So I think those are things that people could focus on. Yeah, which definitely would address stress for sure. There's like straight up behaviors, like weight's not a behavior. So focusing on all these other things that can help everybody across the size spectrum is what I try and focus on. Yeah. So what about the idea? I've heard this a lot about people cutting out carbs or anything that can turn into sugar. I'm using quotation marks here because I don't fully understand all of the mechanisms in order to, I don't even, it's not even address the diabetes or PCOS or whatever it is. It's more so, I don't even know what the objective is, but what would you say to someone who said, oh, I have type two diabetes. I can't have carbs or sugar or fruit. Yeah. So, so there are percentage of people that that will work for. And I have patients that, you know, it's a small amount that will have very low carbs and they control the blood sugar that way with some medication or without. So there are some people that that works for, but the majority of people, it's very difficult to live like that. And, and it's very restrictive. So that's why we talk about pairing foods, getting protein and fats and carbs together, because we live in the world of, you know, we're going out to eat or culturally, you know, whether it's pasta or rice or breads or bagel, you know, whatever it is, I think it's, it's a stress for someone to be at a family event or a work event and be like, Oh, I cannot eat a carb or I can't have this cupcake or whatever. I would say we have these medications, we have movement, we have all these other tools that we can use and listening to the body. And if you having carbs and you're like falling asleep at your desk or your sugar's going high and you're tired and urinating more and more thirsty and all these things, then check in with yourself and, and make some changes. But I think these blanket statements of like, I can't eat X, Y, and Z 
number one doesn't work long term, and number two is a is a stress, and we know what stress does. Yeah, I like that you're saying that because very often it feels like I live in a bubble with the weight inclusive community, and then I get people outside, which is obviously the majority of the world, sort of like poking in. Hey, this is what all the quote science says, and especially type two diabetes, people love to like sort of just talk about type two diabetes, whether they know enough or not. And there's this piece of information that continues to come up about reversing numbers with low carb or no carb diets. And you're saying that, listen, if it works for you, then great. Like, okay. But most people can't actually do that. So it just feels really helpful to reframe it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the numbers and prevalence of diabetes and all this stuff, despite these messages being everywhere for decades, you know, and you could say the same thing about like weight loss stuff. You see all these numbers, diabetes and body weight and all these things haven't changed. If anything, people would say those numbers are going up. So clearly the approach with respect to these things are not improving. So, you know, I think we have to look at things differently and do things that work for individuals and and making blanket statements and being focused solely on weight, which we know most of the time restrictive diets end up with people gaining the weight back and more, which is not good for anyone. I think we got to look at these things objectively and the research has to control for things like weight stigma and access to food and stress and all this other stuff. And you can't just look at an outcome like weight without looking at all those other things. Yeah. Another question popped into my brain and I never have an answer to this usually because it's a pretty combative question and the tone sort of scares me, but there's this, this question that continues to come up about how diabetes. And again, I don't even know if this is true has become so much more prevalent lately. And isn't that because of the food industry that has put all this what do you want to call it? Like quote processed stuff in our food. And that's caused all these metabolic issues taking, of course, the all the attitude out of that. What, what would you say to that? Yeah. I mean, nutrition doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a lot of other things that are going on in the world and it's very hard to isolate and do nutrition research and say on her percent that all these things, you know, are causing diabetes, but you know, I think we have to, we have to look at all these things and we have to, when I talk about nutrition or when I listen to people that, you know, I trust in the nutrition world, nutrition shouldn't necessarily be, how do we take things out, whether it's carbs or whatever, but it's how do we add things in that we know are beneficial or how do we combine foods that we know work together to avoid spikes in blood sugar. And again, it can't be this whole, like, blanket statement of like, no one can have this stuff. It has to be individualized. So if I eat processed foods, my response physiologically may be different than someone else's. And that's why we have science and that's why we track blood sugar and, and whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking about like reversing numbers, is that a possibility for long-term for people? I think that if someone comes in to see me who really is not moving, is not getting good mix of nutrients, is very stressed, is not sleeping, all these things, and doesn't have like a strong family history and starts changing their behavior, changing their lifestyle, then yeah, I mean, their blood sugar may normalize. Um, or if they have some other reversible cause, they're on some medications that were causing high blood sugar, 
or whatever. Yeah, certainly that's possible. I think for a lot of people, if it's genetic or, you know, there's a lot of other factors, it's kind of hard, but it's not impossible to happen. That's pretty cool. I think this conversation is very enlightening for me, especially again, because I get so many of these questions about, especially with type two diabetes and I clearly am not trained in in this. So I do not have the capacity to answer. Just one thing that's popping into my brain about type one diabetes. Can you differentiate the two and potentially like what would be a difference in treatment? Yeah. So type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition, meaning the body's producing these cells called antibodies that interfere with pain, the pancreas producing insulin. So the treatment is insulin, which is the hormone to lower blood sugar. Type two diabetes, people, at least in the beginning and potentially throughout the course of their life, still produce insulin. It's just they their body's resistant to it. That's the foundation of it. So using other medications like pills may work well. So they may, may not need insulin, but a lot of them may end up needing insulin down the road. And there's nothing wrong with that either. And that's the pump that they do on their own. Is that what you mean by insulin? Type one, well, the insulin is the actual hormone, but it could be delivered by a pump or it could be done via pens or it could be done through like vials or people draw it up with a needle, but it's an injectable medication. Oh, interesting. Science is so cool. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you so much for all this information for joining me today. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. Instagram, everything underscore endocrine. I'm on Twitter, Dodell MD. And then my office website, centralparkendocrinology.com. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.